Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Wednesday, December 8th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, cleaning advice from 19th century housekeepers, an upcoming feminist retelling of 1984, how to watch the Geminid meteor shower next week, and MST3K is officially coming back next spring. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So I'm a sucker for all of those living history reality TV shows that were so popular in the early 2000s. You know, 1900 House, Manor House, Victorian Farmhouse, Frontier House, Pioneer Quest. Something about watching modern-day people made to live 24-7 as if they'd been transported back in time is so much more captivating to me than a documentary about domestic life in the same era. I mean, not to mention there is very little recorded about domestic life compared to wars and battles and politics. In the making of featurettes of those shows, because yes, I have not just watched all of those shows, I have also watched every dinky DVD bonus feature on them and read the companion books, but behind the scenes, producers will tell you how difficult it was for them to find historical experts to consult with and source accurate, still-working appliances and such. But there are a number of experts out there in day-to-day domestic life from previous eras, especially in the realm of cooking and fashion, but also the more easily passed over task of cleaning one's home. In those living history shows, some of them show just how much of an unending grind it was for the women and often servants to keep the house clean, but also how kind of genius some of the solutions were. Without washing machines and vacuums and complicated chemical cleaners for every disparate task, people came up with incredibly resourceful methods for cleaning their homes, some of which may even rival some of our methods today. This past spring, as they were beginning to reopen some of their historic sites after months of lockdown, the conservation charity English Heritage, the same organization that's in charge of Stonehenge, decided to put some of their findings into practice. At Broadsworth Hall in Yorkshire, they employed several historical cleaning methods as they prepared the site to welcome visitors again for the first time since before the pandemic. Many of the tips aren't broadly applicable. You know, I don't know how many of you have pony-haired brushes on hand or timber floors and fire grates you care about cleaning, but there were a few you might consider trying. One is cleaning flagstone floors with skim milk. Yeah, just plain old skim milk on its own. Andrew Neberak, the owner of Luxury Cleaning in New York, told the New York Times that he's not too surprised by that. He's actually recently been using milk-based cleaning products to wash an unfinished floor at a furniture showroom in Soho. And another tip from the historians at English Heritage, clean wallpaper using white bread. Quoting the New York Times, Ruth Goodman, an author in Wales who has been researching the work and lives of servants for 30 years, said the idea of using bread to clean wallpaper probably came about in the 1600s, when England went from using wood to coal for heating homes and businesses. The soot made homes filthy, especially the walls. Bread would have worked as an effective sponge without damaging the paper the way that water can, she said. That kind of realization had to come from the women cleaning the house, whose creativity and resourcefulness is often overlooked by history, Miss Goodman said. We've been somewhat bedazzled by the great men of history, she said. Cleaning is not widely talked about, it's not widely researched, and yet it is the basis of survival and the basis of women's lives and working women's lives, end quote. 
And I love that point at the end. Might be why I like those living history shows so much. You know, they show the parts of history that we don't usually hear about. And if that or the impact of the switch from wood to coal intrigues you at all, Goodman has written a book called The Domestic Revolution, How the Introduction of Coal into Victorian Homes Changed Everything. I haven't read it, but it does sound fascinating. Anyways, one more tip that might be worth a shot. In a video that English Heritage posted to their YouTube channel, part of an almost LARPing kind of series where people cook and clean in character and costume as Victorian servants, host Avis Crocombe says that you should use stale bread to scrub frying pans just to remove the debris. Then you should wash them with very hot water and dry as usual. I'm also betting that tip doesn't apply to non-stick pans, just FYI. And of the other methods that were used in the Victorian era or before that you probably shouldn't try, cleaning oil paintings with a potato, shining silver with Worcestershire sauce, washing oat floorboards with beer, and cleaning wallpaper by throwing oatmeal all over the wall and then sweeping it off. Listen, sometimes you only get the good ideas by having a lot of bad ones first. And while I'm giving out warnings and things not to do, an important note here, the idea of cleanliness was different back then. You know, people didn't exactly expect objects to shine and gleam and retain a perfectly white color like we tend to now. It was sometimes more about true cleanliness than looks. Plus, the smells were a bit different back then. As Lucy Lethbridge, author of Mind Your Manners, Tried and True British Household Cleaning Tips, told the New York Times, quote, Urine, for example, was a popular ingredient for washing clothes in the early 1800s, Miss Lethbridge said. In the early 19th century, she mused, maybe the smell of clean was the smell of urine, end quote. If that's so, then New York City in the summertime must be absolutely sparkling with cleanliness. And on that note of what defines cleanliness, today I also stumbled on an article discussing the CDC's definitions of sanitizing versus disinfecting. So first, there's cleaning, which is the removing of debris, dust, organic matter, etc. from a material. You always need to remove all of that before you move on to sanitizing or disinfecting. The goal of cleaning is to remove germs, but it doesn't necessarily kill them. Disinfecting kills the germs with chemicals. It doesn't necessarily clean dirty surfaces or remove the corpses of the germs, so to speak, but it does kill them. And then sanitizing lowers the number of germs to a safe level. So sanitizing is like an extra step added onto cleaning to further decrease the number of germs, and then disinfecting is like bringing in the big guns. The CDC says that cleaning and sanitizing should be happening, you know, basically all the time. Sanitize the high-touch areas of your house, like doorknobs, switches, remotes, and devices on a daily or semi-weekly basis with something like a Lysol spray or using whatever method the various devices instruct. And then disinfect mostly after someone in the house has been sick. Disinfectants often need to stay on a surface or object for several minutes to actually be effective. If you look at the back of a lot of household cleaners, they actually have different instructions for cleaning versus disinfecting if they're capable of doing both. Mostly, though, if you are worried about the spread of COVID or other viruses, I would simply recommend doing more than just throwing milk and oatmeal all over your wall and calling it clean. Five years after it flew off the bookshelves once again and literally sold out on Amazon, George Orwell's 1984 is now getting a 21st century update. 
Author Sandra Newman is writing a feminist retelling from the perspective of the original main character's love interest, Julia. The retelling has been given the official stamp of approval by George Orwell's estate, who said that they've actually been looking for an author for a while who could pull off a version of the novel from Julia's perspective. Quoting The Guardian, Opening with one of literature's most famous lines, it was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. Orwell's 1949 novel is set in a dystopian future where Great Britain, known as Airstrip One, is part of the totalitarian state of Oceania. Big Brother rules supreme, and the thought police stamp out any individual thinking. Winston Smith works at the Ministry of Truth, rewriting history to suit Big Brother's narrative. He starts a forbidden affair with Julia, who works on the novel writing machines in the fiction department, until both are captured and sent for re-education via Room 101. In Julia by Sandra Newman, the incidents of 1984 are seen through the woman's eyes. Publisher Granta said that Julia understands the world of Oceana far better than Winston and is essentially happy with her life. She has known no other world and, until she meets Winston, never imagined one. She's opportunistic, believing in nothing and caring not at all about politics. She routinely breaks the rules but also collaborates with the regime whenever necessary. She's an ideal citizen of Oceana, said Granta. But when one day finding herself walking toward Winston Smith in a long corridor, she impulsively hands him a note, a potentially suicidal gesture, she comes to realize that she's losing her grip and can no longer safely navigate her world. End quote. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Polygon aptly described the original 1984 novel as having, quote, the mixed blessing of being constantly discussed in the modern age while its content is mostly ignored. End quote. There's no release date for Julia just yet. Granta says that they'll be publishing another novel of Newman's first and that they hope Julia will come out in time for the 75th anniversary of 1984 in 2024. Coming up on Monday night into Tuesday of next week, the 13th and 14th, you have a chance to see the final major meteor shower of the year, the Geminids. Sometimes called the most reliable meteor shower, the meteors move more slowly than others like the Perseids and usually produce up to 150 meteors an hour. You probably won't see quite that many this year, though, because the shower is lining up with a waxing gibbous moon, which will be more than 70% lit and wash out visibility, according to Inverse. But if the skies are clear, you should still get somewhat of a show, and to give it the best shot, you should probably head out around 2am local time, when the moon will be beginning to set and the radiant point of the shower appears highest in the sky. So good news for night owls, but you can start looking out around 9pm and might get lucky. Quoting Inverse, Meteor showers are created from the bits of debris that fall from comets and asteroids. As these rocky bodies of frozen gas, dust, and other material travel toward the sun, the star's powerful gravitational pull can weaken them, breaking them down as they draw near. The dust trail from comets forms a train of debris along the path of their orbit, and Earth passes through these trains each year during its own trip around the Sun. The Geminids originate from 3200 Phaeton, which is either an asteroid or an extinct comet. The rocky object swings by the Earth every 1.43 years at an extremely close distance of 21 million kilometers, less than half the distance between the Sun and Mercury. Because of Phaeton's proximity to Earth, the Geminids are intensifying every few years, bringing up the total number of meteors per hour as time goes on. 
end quote. And NASA notes that when the Geminids first started appearing in about the mid-1800s, there were only about 10 to 20 per hour. Not particularly noteworthy. Now you might see, on average, 50 to 75 an hour, with that peak close to 150. And a bit more on Phaeton and the Geminids from NASA, quote, It is possible that Phaeton is a dead comet, or a new kind of object being discussed by astronomers called a rock comet. Phaeton's comet-like, highly elliptical orbit around the sun gives credence to this hypothesis. However, scientists are not certain how to define Phaeton. When Phaeton passes by the sun, it does not develop a cometary tail, and its spectra looks like a rocky asteroid. Also, the bits and pieces that break off to form the Geminid meteoroids are also several times denser than cometary dust flakes. 3200 Phaeton was discovered on October 11, 1983, by the Infrared Astronomical Satellite. Due to its close approach to the sun, Phaeton is named after the character of Greek myth who drove the sun god Helios' chariot. Phaeton is a small asteroid, its diameter measures only 3.17 miles across, and it was astronomer Fred Whipple who realized that Phaeton is the source for the Geminid meteors. Their radiant, the point in the sky from which the Geminids appear to come from, is the constellation Gemini, the twins. The constellation of Gemini is also where we get the name for the shower, Geminids. Although, a note, the constellation for which a meteor shower is named only serves to aid viewers in determining which shower they are viewing on a given night. The constellation is not the source of the meteors. End quote. So mark your calendars for Monday night and hope for clear skies. No binoculars or telescopes needed for this one. Just look up and enjoy the show. It is now official. Mystery Science Theater 3000 will be returning with all new episodes on March 4th, 2022. Having been canceled after its two most recent seasons aired on Netflix, the perennially channel-hopping show took to Kickstarter to not just raise money for another season, but to build an entirely new platform for it to stream on. Called the Gizmoplex, it will be an online hub for new episodes, classic episodes, hosting virtual events, and more. And it raised a whopping $6.5 million in the crowdfunder. That's enough to build the platform and create 12 new episodes and Halloween and Christmas specials. Jonah Ray will continue as host alongside the bots, but OG host Joel Hodgson will also be stopping by, and we might even get appearances from Felicia Day and Patton Oswald since their Mads or Mad Scientist characters apparently run the Gizmoplex in universe. This is great news for longtime fans, but I'd also say that it's going to be a cool opportunity to dive in if you've never watched MST3K before, since the Gizmoplex subscription will give you access to all of the old episodes as well. And if you can't wait until March, I'm dropping a link in the show notes to an article recommending the best MST3K Christmas episodes to watch this season. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.